0: And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's, a, it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. Hello and welcome to the History of England, episode 22, 1066 and goodbye to all that. So this week we've finally reached 1066, surely the most famous date in English history. It's a very well-trodden path, there's masses of stuff out there, but it's also a fantastic story. So let's enjoy going through it one more time. Let's start then with a summary of the three main protagonists. By 1066... William the Bastard was a fully grown man, depicted as a man of fair stature with remarkably strong arms, a receding hairline and a rasping guttural voice. He was about 5 foot 10, which would have been pretty tall for the age and enjoyed excellent health until old age. He did get very fat in later life, so much so that the French king Philip I said that William looked like a pregnant woman. But that's the later and I have to say it's a comment only the French king at the time would probably have felt brave enough to say. So just like that old bloke you can't get away from in the pub, William had been brought up in the school of hard knocks as we heard last week and educated in the university of life. He undoubtedly possessed considerable powers of leadership and courage. Probably not the nicest bloke, but he was devout. He inspired enormous loyalty in his followers. Same time, of course, he could be ruthless and very cruel. He had the same passion for hunting that most nobility of his time had, but he also had a passion for money. He was therefore... In summary, a pretty brutal man, but an exceptionally talented one and a force of nature. Harold Goodwinson, on the other hand, would very probably have been one of those kings that you'd have invited down to the pub in the first place. He seems to have set himself consciously against his father's template. He had a talent for getting on with people and putting them at their ease. He was popular and he seemed to have been liked by most. The chronicler Odoric Vitalis wrote... This Englishman was very tall and handsome, remarkable for his physical strength, his courage and eloquence, his ready jests and act of valour. He also went on to say, but what were these gifts to him without honour, which is the root of all good? This refers, of course, to the famous oath that Harold took supporting William's claim to the throne of England. O'Drick is a self-consciously balanced chronicler, so the comment is interesting and that it does very much demonstrate the impact that that oath had, whatever the circumstances around it. But anyway, we'll come to that later. Harold Godwinson's career, though though truncated, also shows that he was a very effective leader and an effective military commander. So you remember those campaigns in Wales, for example, and he was to show a lot of skill and talent and drive and energy in 1066, and he was to come very, very close. The guy we've not really talked about up to now is Harold Hadrada, Harald has been described as the last great Viking and it's a description that fits him very well. His life is really pretty remarkable. He was born in 1015 and in 1030 at the age of 15 he was on the wrong side in the Battle of Sticklestad where Olaf, the King of Norway, was killed. So Harald Hadrada left with a band of warriors and headed off for Byzantium to seek his fortune. And there he became part of the Emperor's Varangian guard. In 1042, he left the Emperor's service after a glorious career, which we haven't really got time for here. And on his way back to reclaim his throne, he spent three years in the Russian court, acquiring a wife on the way, apparently through the quality of his poetry. So we're getting an impression here of a real polyglot. By 1047, he'd managed it. He'd replaced Magnus as the King of Norway and reclaimed his inheritance. Hadrada, though, means hard ruler. And it was over the next 20 years that Harald acquired that reputation. The next 15 of those years he spent in fruitless warfare against Spain and Denmark. Then finally he accepted that he wasn't going to win this one and he came to terms. But through that process he had comprehensively alienated the Norwegians who went as far as trying to withhold taxes as a sign of their displeasure. Harold was brutal in his response, killing and maiming farmers who refused to pay the taxes. Meanwhile he maintained that standing army and that enabled him to enforce his will on an unwilling nobility. So there we go, the scene is set, we've got three men, all of considerable talent, and with the resources of nations behind them, and all prepared to fight for one of the most lucrative prizes in Europe. We've finally arrived at 1066. But it was a seismic year that had a massive impact on the course of English history. As a lover of the Anglo-Saxons, I also find it surprisingly painful. Damn, why didn't Harold do X and then he might have won, or why didn't Y happen? I am very well aware, and indeed painfully aware, what a nerdy thing this is to say. But I have to say that I'm not sure that I'm entirely alone. I think there might be others of you out there. So yes, here we are, 1100 years later, still feeling the pain of the Battle of Hastings. I feel a bit the same way about the fall of Troy as well, but anyway, let's not go into that one. Anyway, if you've heard the story too many times before, just switch off and come back next week. And if you're not, then here we go. So, the last time two weeks ago, we hadn't quite got to the end of the reign of Edward the Confessor, quite deliberately so, because we have to set the scene for this dramatic and terrible year now. I mentioned that on the fall of Goodwin, one of the things that Edward the Confessor did was to invite William over from Normandy, and very probably offer him the throne. William, of course, also had a hereditary claim through his great-aunt, Emma of Normandy. Meanwhile, the last remaining Anglo-Saxon claimant, Edward the Exile, had died in 1056. And his son Edgar the Atheling in 1066 would have been way too young to be considered for the throne. And we've seen that the Anglo-Saxon tradition was not one of primogeniture, i.e. the automatic succession of the eldest son. 1065 was almost as important a year for the future of the Anglo-Saxon state as was 1066, because there were two really important events that will weaken Harold Goodmanson's position. First, famously, was Harold's visit to Normandy. The story goes that for some reason Harold was on a mission to Pontier on the continent. But he was arrested there by the Count Guy. Guy had recently become subject to William, and was no doubt very eager to ingratiate himself to his new boss. William then played a strong hand really very well, while Harold, poor chap, really had little choice in what went on. Guy handed Harold over to William, and while outwardly William treated Harold as an honoured guest with great respect, there's no doubt that he was really there under duress. Nonetheless, Harold put his best foot forward and clearly impressed his host as a warrior, who was taken by William on an expedition against Conan, the Duke of Brittany, and he performed really well in battle, so much so that he was probably knighted by William, which is of course very nice, but carried with it the pretty clear implication that he'd become William's man, which meant something quite different in Anglo-Saxon England than it did in Normandy, and was probably William again being clever. By making Harold his man, he again linked Harold to him by feudal obligations. But then the really crucial bit, back in Normandy in Bayeux, the famous Bayeux tapestry has the words, Harold took an oath to Duke William. It shows Harold standing in William's presence between two reliques. The oath that Harold was taking was to support Duke William's claim to the throne of England. Harold was then finally released by William and sent on his way. I've often wondered if all of this oath-taking was really that relevant, except in a Norman self-justification-after-the-event kind of way. After all, we all know this is going to end in bloodshed, and the thing that was going to settle the matter was who won the battle. And Harold could easily claim that he was under duress, and that the oath was therefore irrelevant anyway. But actually these oaths really did matter and made a real difference. William was able to claim that Harold was an oath-breaker, He was able to claim papal approval for his invasion and this was absolutely critical in getting the Norman Barons to agree on what was really a pretty risky venture. It also made Harold's position in England much more questionable. In 1066 he was a man with something to prove and I suspect this made him far more headstrong than he might otherwise have been. The other major event in 1065 was the revolt against Harold's brother Tostig. You'll remember that Tostig had succeeded seaward as the Earl of Northumbria, thus further consolidating the power of the Goodwinsons. Tostig hadn't been a complete disaster. He'd built a good relationship with the kings of Scotland, for example, and kept the peace on the borders really well. But he'd mightily annoyed the people of Northumbria, probably by overtaxing them, and also by having taken personal revenge on some Northumbrian thanes. There was still in existence an Anglo-Saxon family with the traditional right of rule in Bamber and Bernicia, and Cospatrick, the heir of that family, had recently been killed at the English court, and Tostig's involvement was suspected. In this atmosphere of distrust, 200 Northumbrian lords seized York, and the revolt then became general. Tostig's supporters were hunted down, and they proclaimed Tostig an outlaw. The rebels then turned to the other remaining leading family, namely the family of Earl Leofric. Leofric, of course, had died, but his son Edwin had become Earl of Mercia, and Edwin's brother Morcar was invited by the rebels to become their earl. Both Morcar and Edwin agreed to become involved. Edwin brought an army down from Mercia to join them, and they marched down into the Midlands, taking up home in Northampton. It really does look like a general revolt, and the involvement of Edwin and Morcar is fascinating. On the one hand, there seems to be no implication that anyone was asking for Northumbria to have its own king, or any implication of a revolt against Edward. But it's surely a sign of weakness that an Earl of the Realm was taking up arms on behalf of the Rebels. And presumably the reason was, at least in part, because of a family rivalry with the Goodwinsons. Harold and the Rebels met at Oxford, which itself is interesting. Harold's influence and leadership is made even clearer. Edward was nowhere to be seen. But even Harold wasn't able to reconcile Tostig and the Rebels. And he made a fateful decision to back the Rebels against his own brother. So Morcar became the Earl of Northumbria and Tostig fled to Flanders with his own followers, nursing a fierce grudge against his brother and the Anglo-Saxon state. And then in this extremely volatile political situation, Edward the Confessor chose this moment to die, on the 5th of January at Westminster. He had obviously been ill for some time and so the Witten was able to meet to decide what to do. Without hindsight, it would be difficult to argue with their decision. The invasion threatened from at least two quarters. Edgar the Atheling was too young and the only contemporary account notes that the king himself had granted the throne to Harold. So they duly chose Harold and he became the first king to be consecrated at Westminster. His succession wasn't easily accepted all over England. Although the Anglo-Saxon tradition was not necessarily one of primogeniture, we've seen that over the last 20 episodes the king was normally chosen from the royal house and Harold didn't qualify on that count. Northumbria was the main objector and although Harold was able to win them round by visiting the lords there with the support of Wolfstan, the Archbishop of York, the Northumbrians were clearly not totally aligned with their new leader. As he prepared to defend his kingdom, Harold held some advantages, but also he had some disadvantages. On the plus side, he had the numbers. Although there is tradition that 1066 was about the defeat of an outmoded army based on an antiquated military model, the disparity in quality is also by no means sure. Harold had a group of well-trained and well-armed warriors, the huscarls, and the third itself wouldn't have been simply the traditional form of peasants armed with sticks and stones. By this time, there's evidence that a parcel of land was required to arm and equip one warrior to meet the summons of the Earl or King. Harold's main problem was one of organisation. He couldn't keep an army in the field indefinitely, and he had no standing fleet. For his fleet, he was dependent on impressing ships from the southern ports. Over the channel, when William heard the news about Harold's succession to the throne, he was not a happy bunny. According to William of Jumiege, when he heard the news, he went all quiet. Everyone near him got scared and William sat at the end of a bench, covering his head with a mantle and resting his head against a pillar. And you can see why he'd be miffed. From his point of view, Harold was his vassal. William had gone round telling everybody he was going to be the King of England and now is in danger of looking like a loser. And William's self-image didn't include the word loser. So William set about organising his invasion. He was able to attract volunteers from all over France, not just Normandy. So there were lords from Flanders, Brittany, Maine, Aquitaine and Normans from southern Italy. One thing that greatly helped him was the Pope's support for this war of unbridled aggression on the slim grounds of Harold's oath, although there's no evidence that Harold was ever invited to plead his cause. The Pope's motivation, as so often with the depressing history of the medieval papacy, was simple expediency supporting a party from whom they could expect a greater return. One of the key disputes of the age was who should appoint the clergy, the king or the pope. In England, as we've seen, there was very little separation between church and state, and the king carried out this job. William agreed to support the papacy in this dispute. It's worth noting, as we'll hear in future episodes, that as soon as he's got hold of England, William refuses to have anything to do with any trendy ideas, such as the pope rather than the king appointing the clergy. It's also clear that despite the reforms under Edgar and Dunstan, the Roman Church thought little of the English Church. And it's true to say that much of the reform had indeed run out of steam during the Raid of Ethelred. And finally, the English Archbishop of Canterbury, Stigand, was deeply unpopular with the Pope, since he continued to hold two sees at the same time, Winchester and Canterbury. Five successive popes had excommunicated him for this. The fact that this went on seemingly without worrying King Edward is an interesting note about the independence of the English church and something the Romans would love to do something about. And William was clever enough to latch onto this. Papal support made a major difference. Whereas the initial response of the Norman nobles in the English adventure had been disinterest, when the Pope intervened, everything changed. Meanwhile, the first campaign of 1066 was played out in May when Tostig appeared with a fleet off the south coast at Sandwich he was joined by a man called Copsy, a lord from the Orkneys who at the time would have owed allegiance to Harold Hadrada. Tostig set off up the coast, landing at Burnham in Norfolk and harrying the countryside, then setting off for the Humber and disembarking on its southern bank. But his raiding was then stopped in its tracks by Earls Edwin and Morcar, who inflicted a heavy defeat on him. Tostig withdrew with a few of his remaining ships to Scotland, where he could rely on the relationship he'd built up with the King of Scotland. The events here showed that the resources of England were more than capable of seeing off any private invasion. They also showed the continuing problem of the lack of an English fleet and that Tostig had in all likelihood had correspondence with Harold Hadrada given the involvement of Copsey. So as he sat in Scotland, it's very likely that Tostig was planning the later invasion. Anyway, back in England, Harold spent June then assembling a defensive fleet on the south coast against William's expected invasion he assembled a large fleet stationed at the Isle of Wight. William had meanwhile built a large fleet from scratch, and by the start of August he was ready to sail. But through August and the start of September he was held by adverse winds, which in the end played into his hands in fact, because the English naval structure didn't allow the maintenance of this fleet for long. The militiamen that manned it refused to stay on any longer, and on or near the 8th of September Harold was forced to let them go and withdraw his ships to London. The channel now lay open to William. and now Harold Hadrada had landed in the north of England on the 8th of September with a huge force of 300 ships or possibly more, an army then of probably 10,000 to 15,000 men. He started by ravaging places like Scarborough on the coast and was quickly joined by Tostig. The combined force sailed up the River Ouse towards York, with the English ships too few to resist and retreating before them. The Scandinavians stopped and disembarked at a place called Rickle, which is about 10 miles away from York, and they began to advance on the city. Harold probably didn't hear about this until the 13th or so, and would have needed some time to assemble an army. So it might not have been until the 20th that he set off for York. But meanwhile, he would have known that the earls of Mercia and Northumbria, Edwin and Morcar, were in place and ready to raise an army to get rid of Hadrada, so maybe everything would be okay. And that is indeed what Edwin and Morcar tried to do, in the first and least regarded battle at 1066, but one that was probably just as significant as all the rest. The English army barred the advance of the Vikings at a town called Fulford, and on the 20th of September the battle was fought. The English army was described as immense, so we can probably assume that the two armies that met there were at least well matched. Hadrada put the river Riveroos on the flank of his army, and had a ditch in front of him to protect his position. The English attacked his position and managed to attack the Norwegian line at a bit of an angle. So at first things went well, with Morkar rolling up the Norwegian line. But then Hadrada launched a counter-attack from his left flank, which came up themselves on the English flank. Now the English were pushed back onto the ditch, and the fighting became desperate until at last the army broke and ran. As ever, when armies broke and ran, we're told that vast numbers of English were then slaughtered. The importance of Fulford is absolutely enormous. A large English army had been defeated and was now unavailable to Harold. And he'd have to try and cope with the invasion himself, whatever William did. So one of the many what-ifs of 1066 is this one. What would have happened if Edward and Morcar had won at Fulford? But hey, they fluffed it, however bravely, and York came to an agreement with Tostig and Hadrada that they'd join him in return for being left in peace. So the Norwegians withdrew to a place called Stamford Bridge, about seven miles to the east of York. I'm conscious again, by the way, of all the place names we're into here, so as ever there's a map on the website for you to refer to. Had Rada's army were flushed from victory and would have been totally confident that there was no English army within miles of them. And so, in fact, on the 20th of September, the army lay around in the meadows by the River Darwent, basking in the autumn sun with their armour and arms discarded. But they were wrong. Harold had marched with ferocious speed. He arrived at Tancaster on the 24th and picked up the men of the English fleet. We don't really know exactly when he'd set off and therefore how many miles a day his army had achieved in the 200 mile march north. But there's no doubt the march was quite feat. Most estimates have those 200 miles covered in a mere five days. So 40 miles a day for five days. So don't you tell me those hoosecars went a hard lot. On the 25th, he again covered the 20 miles between Tadcaster and Stamford Bridge and the first the Norwegians knew of his army was the sight of the shining weapons of the English. According to the saga writer Storis Stulleson, when their weapons glittered, it looked like a sheet of ice. Many would have had no time to put their armour on and the Norwegians were unprepared for the fight. But before the fight started, one of the chroniclers has a brave English soldier approaching Hadrada and Tostig and offering Tostek his Elden back if he would turn on Hadrada. Tostig asked the man what Harold would offer Hadrada for his trouble, and received the reply, Six feet of ground, or as much more as he needs, as he's taller than most men. This, it transpires, was Harold itself. Well, we're back to story again, and it's a nice story, but I think we can agree it's probably a bit unlikely, but maybe it should be true again. Despite their unpreparedness, the Battle of Stamford Bridge was long and hard, and lasted all day. Hadrada formed a defensive ring on the river and sent messages for the men guarding his fleet to join him. But he was never able to release his army from English pressure. He never recovered from being off guard and in the end the Norwegians were totally defeated and Hadrada and Tostig themselves were killed. Harold allowed the remaining Norwegians to return home on as many ships as they needed which amounted to just 24 of the 300 who had come over. That was the scale of the defeat. Stamford Bridge is of course massively overshadowed by Hastings and its significance often seemed purely as the impact it must have had on the ability of the English to resist the later Norman invasion. But we should recognise Harold's achievement. The last Scandinavian invasion had seen the English apparently helpless in the face of the Viking onslaught. Harold had acted with enormous speed and decisiveness and at Stamford Bridge ended more than 200 years of conflict with the Vikings and defeated a famous war leader. Back in Normandy... The northerly wind that had held William on the Norman coast had changed and now on the 27th of September he managed to finally set sail over to the small Roman fort at Pevensey on the Sussex coast. The Norman armies derived on the Sussex coast would have been about 7,000 strong with 2,000 mounted men provided with extra horses and 5,000 foot soldiers. Once again it's really important not to think about William's victory purely as one of more advanced technology but it's got to be said that his army did have significant advantages. One was that, unlike the English, his mounted men fought on horseback, rather than just using horses as a mode of transport. This is the heavy mounted cavalry that were to be a trademark of the Western feudal world, and which, in the right circumstances, could of course be absolutely devastating. But we should also note that, given the position that Harold had taken at the top of Senlac Hill, these mounted cavalry, right until the end, were not able to be used fully effectively. Another is that archers were integrated into the army as a structured part of it. The English did use slingers and archers, but their use was a bit more haphazard. All of this meant that William had an army which had more options. It integrated cavalry, infantry and archers, and was much more able to act as an offensive force as well as a defensive one. It's impossible not to admire the enormous efficiency with which William went about his task, Not only had he overseen the construction of a fleet of 400 ships entirely for this enterprise, he also had with him all the materials he needed for those famous Mott and Bailey castles and was able to throw up an effective castle within days. The Mott then, just in case you don't know, is a manually constructed mound of earth, on top of which is placed a rampart of wooden stakes. The Bailey is then a larger area below the mound, again enclosed by a rampart of wooden stakes. Now we've seen the Anglo-Saxons making use of fortresses as well. Remember those wars of Edward the Elder when he reconquered the Danelaw. But the Normans had made an art of castle building and indeed in many later texts they're referred to as the castlemen. One of the beauties of the modern Bailey Castle was not only that it could go up very quickly and give a firm base for operations but also that it could be taken down very quickly leaving nothing for any counter-attacking force to make use of. William paused in Sussex He lay south of the Weald, which was then a famously impenetrable wilderness. It's not around now, because it was cut down by Henry VIII to build one of those navies he didn't need. He would have been concerned about his provisioning, and about being surprised or cut off as he struggled through the Weald. He would have known that he had one chance, and would probably have expected the English to have the chance to recover from one defeat and try again. And with no idea how much he knew about the activities in the north, Harold then made a series of decisions that had been hotly and long debated. He decided that speed was again important, and that he should rush south as fast as possible. He decided that all the Goodwinsons, Gerd, Leifwin and himself, should be at the battle to stress dynastic solidarity. He decided not to wait for the northern earls, Edwin and Morcar, who were busily gathering another army. So he rushed back south, and within another few days he was back in London, where he waited for a week and then by the 12th of October he left London with an army of about two to 3,000 cars The southern third was to join him by the old grey apple tree, which stood on the road from Hastings out to London. So then by the 14th, the English army was in place on Senlac Hill, and having been joined by the southern third, it was probably of a very similar size to the Norman army, maybe slightly larger. There's a picture of it on the website, but bear in mind it would have been much steeper then than it is now. The Normans had had plenty of time to prepare and were therefore completely unsurprised. But Harold had other reasons for being so fast. For one thing, he felt dynastically challenged, if that's the right word. He was being accused by the world of being an oathbreaker and a usurper. He would not feel safe on the English throne until he had comprehensively defeated his accusers. And there was a perfectly sound strategic reason for Senlac Hill. He was blocking the road out from the Weald to London. While he was there, William could not break out of Sussex and start ravaging the land and taking the initiative. And then because of his speed, Harold also got to choose the ground of battle, which we're told is one of the most important things any general needs to do. And in this situation, it was even more important because he had to negate the effect of that normal cavalry. William was burdened by horses, so unlike the Vikings, he couldn't just simply hop on his ships and sail off to land somewhere else. No, while deciding not to wait for the Northern Earl's is one of the big ifs of English history There were perfectly sound reasons for Harold acting in the way that he did. If I try and put aside my basic and extremely unprofessional Anglo-Saxon prejudices just for the moment, you can still get an impression across all these centuries of the thrill and excitement that William must have felt with this great adventure. We do know the names of some of the nobles that joined William, and after their victory they'll be richly rewarded beyond their wildest dreams and we'll be hearing their names and those of their families over the next couple of hundred years. We know of 15 companions of William at Hastings. I put all their names on the website, but remember names like Beaumont, Mallet, Warren and de Montfort. Men like this were to be richly, richly rewarded. So everything was set for the battle, and William's tactics were straightforward enough. Soften them up with archers and crossbows, send the infantry up the hill to engage in close combat, and then send the cavalry in to finish them up. But it didn't work, and for an hour the attacks broke on the shield wall and the horses would not throw themselves at a solid formation, so the Norman knights could only approach, throw their javelins and retire. And the position of the English at the top of Senlac Hill plays a big part here. The arrows were coming at a trajectory that they could deal with, and the horses couldn't charge. Meanwhile, stones and spears thrown by the English made mincemeat of the lines of Norman infantry. It was this very success that led to disaster for the English in the end. The Bretons fled in confusion from this brutal battering with their cavalry murderously entangled with their foot soldiers, and some of the English third pursued. William, with superb discipline and control, turned his force on the third and cut them to pieces. This wasn't the end of the affair, but the next five hours were to show that Harold could ill afford the loss of these men, for as his ranks began to thin out, more and more of the less experienced fyrdmen were in the front line, and the Saxons began to weaken. Harold's brother Leofin was killed. Then some of the Norman cavalry were able to get up on the hill and be more effective in splitting the Saxon shield wall. As the shield wall shrank, the archers began to prove their worth as arrows fired over the top fed onto the unprotected man in the rear lines. And then Harold was killed, whether by an arrow or sword hack or both, and the English were finished. The third man took to the hills. Harold's remaining brother Gerd was killed. The remaining huscarls fought on to the bitter end. It's worth saying that most battles in those days lasted no more than a couple of hours. The Battle of Hastings went on all day. In the words of the Duke of Wellington a few hundred years later, it had been a damn close-run thing. Very few of the English survived the battle, though there is a record of a successful ambush by one group on the pursuing Normans against the Bretons at a place called malfosse or Ditch of Evil. But events such as this would have been outnumbered by countless examples of fleeing English being cut down by the Norman cavalry. In the aftermath of the battle, the body of Harold and his brothers were located by Edith Swanneck, Harold's mistress. But although Harold's mother begged to be able to bury her son, William refused, and he asked William Mallet to bury his body by the sea. At the exact spot where Harold had planted his banner, William would build an abbey in celebration of his victory. William waited by the sea for two weeks, mainly waiting for the English to come to him and submit willingly, and also dealing with the effects of dysentery which swept through his army. But meanwhile in London, all the implications of the reign of Edward the Confessor and Harold's decision came to roost. There was no Goodwinson old enough left to carry on the fight. Harold had many sons and daughters who survived, but none of them were old enough or legitimate and therefore able to take up the throne. The Witton and Eldred, the Archbishop of York, elected Edgar Atheling, who was Edmund Ironside's grandson to be king. But as William began to move north, ravaging the countryside as he came, the lack of unity in the kingdom became clear. Edwin and Morcar departed for their earldoms, apparently convinced that this had been a private quarrel between Harold and William that was no longer part of their business. They no doubt helped they'd be able to keep their lands and make an accommodation with the new ruler. William took possession of Canterbury and Winchester and crossed the Thames at Wallingford, 40 miles west of London. And by this stage, English resistance had crumbled and the Archbishop Stigand and Eldred came with Edgar Atheling to submit to him. So on Christmas Day 1066... William was at last crowned in Westminster Abbey, crowned by Eldred, with the despised and Archbishop of Canterbury nowhere to be seen. The ceremony was that that had been used by Edgar with the French addition of the sacred oil during their King's anointing. But the ceremony did unfortunately go horribly wrong. The Norman guards outside Westminster Abbey heard shouts of acclaim from inside and assumed some sort of revolt was starting. They attacked London citizens, starting to burn the houses and everyone rushed out of the church. Uncharacteristically, William was left pale and trembling, which is not our standard image of the conqueror. So with William, we have the last of the kings of England not to be descended from the line of Cerditch. And despite the death throes we need to record in the next episodes, we also say our official goodbye to Anglo-Saxon England. I don't know about you, but I'm going to miss the Anglo-Saxons. There's something about the discovery involved. I know far less about this period than any other, apart from maybe the 13th and the 15th century. And with the exception of the Civil War, it's probably right up there as my favourite period. Also, the record of history is so much kinder because there's so little of it. This means a couple of things, I think. Firstly, many of the brutalities that very probably exist are not recorded. I've no doubt that the early kings of Wessex spent every bit as much time mutilating people as did Canute and William, but no one wrote it down. And secondly, the lack of sources means you're able to read most of them and form your own view of what happened. As time goes on, of course, this is simply impossible, and reliance mainly on secondary sources is really the only possible route for anybody other than a professional historian. It's also a period where so many of the basics of England were formed, basic attitude to unity, law, language, society and government, that the Normans could not destroy, and much of which they had no intention of doing so. So anyway, goodbye Anglo-Saxon England, I feel quite tearful, and I will miss you. Next time, though, it'll be William, now the Conqueror, not the Bastard, And time to look at why William has to turn to a policy of brutal subjection to make his new kingdom secure. So once again, thanks for listening. And next week we'll hear about how William starts going about ruling his new kingdom.